Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by the new chair of the Football Writers Association, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, and by Seb Stafford-Bloor of TIFO Football, for whom similar honours await. Much more a little later from Mikel Arteta. He's given us a unique insight into his managerial philosophy. I'm sure you'll find it a fascinating listen. He speaks of his debt to Pep Guardiola. So, a simple question to start with, John. Can Manchester City be stopped? No. (laughs) I've never felt, I've never felt more utterly convinced in all my time of covering the Premier League that one team would win it. I mean, there's been runaway champions in the past, but This team, I mean, how on earth do you stop them? They could win it by 20, 25 points and really also slightly concerning for their rivals is that the drop away, the sharp drop away in the main contenders like Liverpool, how will Man United adapt under Ten Hag? Arsenal might be emerging as the main contenders. But really that shouldn't detract away from the brilliance and, and dominance of City. I mean, in signing Haaland, they've just completed the set, haven't they? And that's what makes them look so unstoppable. What a player. As a price tag of £51 million, it looks a sensational piece of business. He looks so made for the Premier League with his power, his strength, his intelligence. He's being able to drop deep and always getting on the end of things. He just reads the likes of De Bruyne and Foden so well. They just look an unstoppable force. And they are so good to watch. I'm a huge fan of Guardiola and the way that he you know, sets his teams up. And they are just a fabulous football team. And I have to say, Haaland, I think, has just completed them now as a fabulous machine. Yeah, well, when you think about it, Seb, if you look at it statistically, I think he's on course for 71 Premier League goals. Is he one of these sort of no-limits type of players? And look at City, if you could, in the round... You know, it's easy to think, well, well, you know, John's talking about winning by 20, 25 points. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or actually, is it actually something to aim for? Okay, so questions one at a time. I I think in Holland, we're seeing a package of abilities in a player that we haven't really witnessed since probably, although I'm not drawing a direct comparison, the original Ronaldo. 
just in terms of uh, skill, size, speed, everything that you could ask for in a centre forward. I differ slightly from John in relation to kind of how I view their start and what I expect to happen next, just because I think whenever you have something as unusual as a Winter World Cup, I'm not sure you can ever be sure about sort of performance levels throughout the season. Like you're talking about kind of a continuous level achieved with this massive irregular break in the middle of it. And also with regards to Holland, and this might also be informed by Ronaldo, whenever you see a player of that size, whose motion is predicated on short, sharp changes in direction, power, I'm always worried just because like we've seen the spectacle once before and it was taken away by injury and by muscular problems and just by kind of stress load on muscles. Uh, he had a few injuries in his last season at Dortmund and it just, that concerns me. Whether it's something to aspire to, I feel like the thing that I'm left with after the weekend was Manchester City scored six times against Manchester United. Yes, okay, Man United scored a couple of like stat padding goals at the end where like the game's clearly over and it, it kind of flattered them a little bit in the scoreline. It worried me how processional it all looked and how normal it felt. Like in the sense that I remember the first time City scored six Old Trafford. That was a moment in Premier League history that I remember watching thinking none of us are ever going to forget this because it's something that people of my age, I, I'm nearly 40, you grow up, you, you can't imagine Man United being battered like that at Old Trafford. Now, irrespective of kind of recruiting decisions and problems at Old Trafford and you know the, the kind of the sequence of events that brings them to where they are in the present day, it felt like just another normal day. Like, okay, another six goals, another two players scoring a hat-trick, another kind of display of power, which was kind of irresistible. I was alarmed by how unshocked I was by that and how, ah, well, next weekend, let's see what happens. See who gets battered in seven days' time. That I don't feel can be good, Mike. That's true enough. John, argue against yourself if you could. Is there a weakness in that City team that others can exploit? So I would probably argue, yeah, playing devil's advocate here, centre-halves, I must say the two centre-halves that have been surprised a few, including myself on on, on Sunday, and, and yet Nathan Ake, actually his distribution out from the back, you know, was really good. I still think that, you know, sometimes if you haven't got that centre-half first choice, and I think, I always think of that first choice two from a permutation of three, which was, you know, it's Stones, Diaz and Laporte. Sometimes I still think if one of those kingpins goes down, but then arguably on Sunday, there's the counter-argument. Having said that, they do then concede three goals. So I guess you're kind of pointing still towards one or two defensive frailties. Guardiola's determination to make the full-backs into midfielders sometimes gives space. And then also midfield, I think Rodri is still such an important player. And yet again, you're kind of arguing against that because if he's missing, like we saw or we've seen recently, you know, that he obviously had an injury. It's, it's I don't know, there's little little bits there. You know, sometimes complacency, does that creep in? That could be their biggest danger. But I, I must say, Mike, I am struggling to find <laughs> those sort of kind of things in the armour, really, simply because, okay. and I, I think previously you'd have said definitely up front. And I just think that Haaland has shut that argument down. And so now you're looking to kind of pick fault in, in such a good team. Mm. Well, if it's having that effect on, on us as observers, what's it like as potential opponents, Seb? Let's look at Liverpool. Do you think 
as I suspect, that they've almost been burned out by the effort of trying to keep up. Yeah, I mean, whether to use a term that strong, I don't know. But like, I would certainly agree that the level of intensity in that side has diminished. I'm reading Pep Linder's book at the moment. Intensity is a big theme there. And I note that like, well, whilst this current Liverpool team are capable of little moments where they ratchet up the intensity and they're able to show what we've come to know as their true selves over the years because they've been a fabulous team for a really long time. Like, I don't think that should be understated, just how long they've been able to sustain this period. I think it's hugely impressive. To me, and I say this without any any knowledge or any understanding of the situation specifically, it feels like they're being coached a bit differently. Like it feels like, and I, I don't know whether like, I know I've already mentioned it, but it feels like they're being coached in a way that kind of is is aware of the sort of the, the the challenges of the season, the volume of football that these players are having to go through. And I just wonder whether that's a factor. I, I think there are other issues there. Like I, I think we've seen some mistakes, some very strange moments defensively, like some very strange decisions that are being made defensively. And certainly, I mean, most recently in, in the Premier League, the goalkeeper was strangely off form and there were a couple of players out of position when they were defending, particularly that second Trossard goal at the weekend. That was That looked odd to me. But yeah, I, I I think I see them as a as a sort of team, firstly in a in a strange situation, but also slightly between eras, in the sense that they are currently moving away from some of the powers that they've relied upon for most of the last five years towards players who are also really, really good and could potentially be outstanding in the future. But there's been a little bit of a drop off, a bit of a sagging in the cycle, if that makes sense. And I think that's how I view them. I'm not ready to, to I'm not ready to dismiss them because so we come out to them playing Arsenal at the weekend. I think Arsenal are a really excellent side, but then would anyone be shocked if Liverpool rolled them over just based on what we've seen over so many seasons? No. So I think let's just, let's pause. Let's maybe see where they are in February when they've dealt with the World Cup and let's see how they're playing, not necessarily the form, but the way in which they're playing, what they're relying on, whether it's intensity based or whether it's sort of a slower, more kind of methodical approach. I don't know. though. They're in a very strange I'm going to use a Brendan Rodgersism, a very strange moment, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, know, you you were at Anfield on Tuesday night, John. What were your impressions of a team which is almost trying to come to terms with itself? It seemed to me, Nunez came back, movement was good, he was thwarted by some excellent goalkeeping, but in that sort of four attacking forces that were put out in that team. It seemed to me that four into three really didn't go. Yeah, I'm not sure it quite worked. A few people raved about a slightly different formation of a 4-2-3-1, really, which effectively was what it was. I think he's trying to sort of squeeze those sort of attacking players in while having that base there of Henderson and Thiago, as it was last night, Fabinho came on, and then sort of to accommodate his greater strength in the attacking sphere. But I think Liverpool as a team are a better balanced unit and being really successful as a 4-3-3 really because then that allows you kind of, you know, I mean Klopp talked at length about this on Friday didn't he in his defence of, of Alexander-Arnold basically it allows the midfield to, you know, sweep up and sort of tuck in, get behind and, and cover for his attacking fullbacks. And I, I just feel as if Tuesday night really really made the point to me that they're still struggling for a little bit of form and confidence and belief. And yet I thought that was a good step in the right direction and some better performances out there, but he's still searching for that formula. And for me, that comes down to the fact that 
I think he's shaken up the front line, partly because obviously Mane's departure. Uh, I think he has, whether we like it or not, he's brought in Simicass, who's who's a good deputy for Robertson, one of the you know one of the best, if not the best, left back in the world. Astonishing player, and also he's signed a big centre half, hasn't he, in Canata, who hasn't quite clicked yet. Simply more because of kind of consistency and and, and injury more than anything else. But he he can still be good. And the one area that he hasn't attacked is midfield. And needless to say, I think that. Midfield is is their Achilles heel this season. That midfield three because he, you know, he's got super individuals, but I think they're lacking in that department. Them resisting that temptation, I think, has, has, has weakened them. I looked at them at the start of the season, kind of we were look asked for our tips for the start of the season. I only put Liverpool third actually, simply because I thought I'm not sure about that because I think he needs to re-energize and refresh that midfield. And I, I just thought going to that different, slightly different formation was, was slightly telling, you know, just because Fabinho, brilliant, Henderson, leader, Thiago, fabulous player. And then he's got other players coming through, isn't he? Harvey Elliott and sort of Curtis Jones, good player, I think. But I think he needs one more player of real quality to push Liverpool back because they do look as if they've slightly lost that impetus and lost that drive a little bit. Very briefly, because I know people will want to know, who did you have a second? <laughs> Tottenham. Okay, well, we'll get into that later. <laughs> now, Arsenal going to the weekend, top of the Premier League. This is a club reborn and reconnected. How did Mikel Arteta achieve that? Well, I think this conversation will give you a few clues. Well, firstly, Mikhail, thanks for joining us. Leadership. It was a huge area of interest. Books written about it. Theories are formed about it. You're living it. Who are the leaders that have shaped you? What are the influences that you've had? The first ones, for sure, my parents. The way they lead the family. The way they have constructed me and my sister as human beings with the values that they believe they were the right ones for us to have a, a successful and a happy life. And then the way they did it, you know, usually all the members of the families, friends, and especially with behaviors and, and facts, which in my opinion is the most powerful way of, of leading. And after that, then it's been a journey, a journey of finding the right people in your life to guide you, to inspire you. And that has been through probably two or three different areas in my life. One has been in sports, for sure, with teammates that I had, with coaches that I had, with people that I have met along the line. In my private life, for sure, my wife, who is, again, is done what my parents did with me, but with our own family, and raising our children and, and creating an environment at home that, that is unique for how we want to live our life and, and how we want to promote the values that, that we believe in with our children. And then the other one, probably, is um, having other opinions externally with other people in other industries, in other areas, people that can judge or see your job or your role in, in a different way that, that I listen to, just to become at the end with one objective, to be a better person. Mm. Because you know, people talk about truth tellers, and they're usually outside the bubble of football because they've got no, there's no self-interest in there in what they tell you. What type of people do you listen to? Can you give me some specific examples of 
people who maybe have helped you at a time of maybe a little bit extra stress than normal? For example, in, in other sports, I'm part of, of a group. It's called a symposium that you have other managers from many other <laughs> sports that uh, we gather together and uh, we share experiences, you know, and share your experiences and you want an opinion on it and you want to be judged on, on your decision making on how would you act differently or accordingly to that situation. And that's been incredibly valuable for me because there is not a competition there, but uh, they can put their skin in the situation because they have lived those situations in a very similar way. One of the names can be Eddie Jones, which I'm building a, a very good relationship with him and it's been really helpful and someone that I admire so much and I can meet many others. Mm. Pet famously warned you about the loneliness of your job. Mm. Was that warning well-founded and how do you deal with that? isolation because leaders in any walk of life do always talk about that the loneliness or the isolation of leadership knowing that the decisions you make will be questioned the greatest thing with Pepe was that I was able to see and feel what the role meant working in another office and looking through the window or trying to read what he was feeling but he gave me the opportunity to get inside the mind and really verbalize how he was feeling, fears that he had, things that they were fulfilling in the most, the reason why he was doing it, the periods that he had difficulties or he had good moments. He really shared deeply his emotions with me and, and that was, for me, an incredible lesson. I knew, obviously, before we worked together, but uh, he did it in a way that transformed my way of understanding the profession and the reason why he was sitting there every day with with such a pride and, and such a passion as well. Because I've noticed in the way that you do your job, you're not afraid to admit emotional vulnerability. Mm -hmm. In some of the talks, you, know, you talk about you know, your history of you know, heart issues and things like that. Football is a very macho world and some players are almost intimidated into not being true to themselves. They create this image around themselves. Mm -hmm. Is that a conscious thing that you do, that you share some of your deep feelings with your players? It's not only with the players, uh, we do it with the people that is next to us in our lives and uh, it wouldn't make sense not to do that when we spend more time than with our own families. If there are central values that you want to promote and embrace, like respect or trust, how can you trust somebody if you don't really know how he's feeling? It's just impossible. And if you want help and support, you need to give the opportunity to people to help you and support you. And that help can come from anybody. It can come from the kid, it can be from the photographer, it can be from the groundsman, it can be from anybody. Just a word, a hug, the way he looks at you, the way he talks about you, the way he can open up to you. It just opens emotionally so many boundaries that if you don't give access to that, I think you are so limited in the role or, or as a person. Mm. With pressure, Mike Tyson, the boxer, talked about fear as his fire. Now that fire can warm you or it can burn you. Is pressure your version of that fire, that you have to embrace pressure because it's there anyway? I always had it and, um, and it's very different when you are a player and when you are a manager. Probably the biggest fear as a player, it was 
to get badly injured. You know, that's the, mm. the lowest point as a player and not being able to to fulfill your potential because you don't have the right conditions to do that because physically you cannot do it. As a manager, probably is the fear of, of getting sacked. And I made a very conscious decision the day that I made that decision to be a head coach. Is that it would happen today, tomorrow, in a month's time, in 10 years' time. I don't know when it would happen. That cannot drive my emotion and this cannot be the reason why I do certain things or not. For me, the fear now as a manager is not the fear it is to let people down, not to give my best, not to be able to transmit what I want to do in the most efficient way to help those players and to have the people who support us connected and understanding what we are about. That's the fear. I cannot fail there. I can fail making the wrong tactics and losing a game and then it's someone's decision to decide what is best for the football club, but I cannot get people not to understand, not to follow what we're about. Because mm. is that a part of a product of your, your background? You know, your, the Basque nation idolises its sportsmen, you know, from India Rain in cycling, you know, maybe the local heroes who play Pelota or the two major football clubs. Mm. I've always been struck when I've spent time in Athletic Bilbao and I would, forgive me, I know you're the other side of the fence, but... No, but I was blown away by the link between the club and the community. You felt it in San Mamés, you felt it in the Cantera. Are you trying consciously here to promote that sort of collective identity, draw in the fans and people like that? I will probably, I'm probably doing it because I've been educated like that, as you say, I've been raised like that. I have those feelings and I would do it consciously and unconsciously, probably both ways because I think it's the best way to have people enjoying what we do. You know, if you talk to me about, okay, what are non-negotiables, and people will go straight away to discipline. Wow. Discipline, you know, and respect, and it's great. But for me, it's enjoyment. Especially in the industry that we are, to do what we are, that we have a, a loving feeling of this sport. If we don't have enjoyment, is what the hell are we doing here? Mm -hmm. Is that why do you think you connect on a very basic level with younger players, it seems to me, mm -hmm. that you almost feed off their, not so much their innocence, but certainly their unfulfilled ambitions? Is that something that you can share with them? Well, it's so fulfilling, you know, when you see that innocence that they had still, you know, but at the same way that drive and ambition and, and energy, it's so powerful for us at the end is we're going to make decisions that probably are going to change their lives. You know, and we have to be very conscious of that. And we want to get them exposed and, and in the fire line when, when they are ready to do so. In order to do that, we don't have only to prepare them to what to expect on the pitch, but what is happening out there, what is going to happen with their families, what is going to happen with their friends. There's a lot of things that they're going to be there. So it's a big responsibility for us as a club to do that. And uh, I think we have to offer them the integral package and in order to do that, you have to build that personal relationship with them. Mm. A lot of players now, because of the exposure, commercial activity, they are becoming small multinational corporations in their own right. Mm. And you have to manage that. Are we approaching the stage in the game where with certain players, they're almost unmanageable because the way they feel, they feel they're almost bigger than their club. 
I think it's very dependent to the people that they have around them and the character of that person. If that character can be molded and influenced negatively by other people, that's a very dangerous business to get involved in. But in general, I would say that we have to accept that, that the industry is moving in, in that direction and the teams that they are surrounded by, they are bigger and bigger. I think it's our responsibility as well to educate them and, and to make sure that, that they have the right people around them because if not, at some stage, we're going to have a conflict. Mm. When you assess a player, maybe someone you would bring in or someone you're thinking of promoting, mm -hmm. what is more important in your own mind? Is it their talent or their character? Their character, 100%. Because? Because the talent can be developed, can be worked, and can be transformed sometimes, I think. The character and the nature of the heart of that person, I think it's very, very difficult to transform. You can influence it, but it's very difficult to transform. And that's something that probably they are the way they are, again, because how they've been raised, where they have been raised, what the culture means, what is important or relevant in their lives, how they fulfill their egos, their necessities. And it's very different. We have 17 different nationalities in that dressing room. And each of them has a wonderful story, but they are so different one to another. So I think nowadays when you want players, you know, to consistently perform at the highest level, they need to have certain characters to do that. Mm. You talked about taking the temperature of the dressing room. So when you walk in, what are you consciously doing? Are you reading body language? I know Bill Belichick, the NFL coach, said his most important asset was his ability to listen. Mm -hmm. When you walk into that dressing room and you have your group around you, mm -hmm. what are you looking for and what are you hoping for? Probably it happens a little bit before that, is how they, how they get into the bus, how they get into the dressing room, how they are getting changed, what is the interaction between them. What is the energy there at the end? Is the energy is not only the temperature, but is the light as well. What is the mood there? It's difficult to express, but you need to really activate, I think, as a coach, those sensors to really anticipate what is needed and then make the decision of what you think. And, and a lot of time we, we will get it wrong probably, but uh, it's with the best intention. Mm. We live in an age where players are individually analyzed. They all have their own drop boxes. You know, you've been through a bit more public exposure here because of the documentary series. Do you ever find yourself watching back your team talks and almost analysing yourself? Mm. I haven't done it yet on purpose because I watched the first two episodes when we did the, the presentation or the unveiling of, of the documentary and it was very emotional for me going back there and, and very strange seeing myself there on, on camera. So I have the rest to watch. What I have done is I ask a few, in my opinion, key people in my life to make an assessment of what they think of me without me looking at it. And when I get that finalized, then I would do it myself. But I want that blind piece of paper of people that have been in the sport, they're in other industries, mm some of them that they know me closely to understand what they think about it, where can I get better, where can I improve, what are the things that we should maintain or, or continue to do. And that will be, in my opinion, a really helpful tool to improve in, in my profession and probably as a human being as well. Mm. This is a human, it's a people business football, but it's also a business. How important is it for someone in your role to have 
an absolutely complementary relationship with your sporting director and, mm. and Edu. How does it work between you two at Arsenal? Well, I'm really lucky because from day one, the day that he came in my house and, uh, and he explained the idea that he had and, and why he was convinced that I was the, the right person to, to help the club to, to move where we wanted to do, we clicked. Uh, we clicked personally, professionally, in our vision, we clicked. And then we expand that into the board, into ownership, and, and that relationship is extremely fluent and natural, I would say. And I think it's the only way that you can really fulfill your potential if you have that. When you don't have that, I think it's very difficult. Because when you're talking about a project, you know, by definition or certainly by implications, it's a longer term strategy. How long do you think it would take you to maximise your impact at Arsenal? Depends what you call for success. I mean, if it's winning titles or is bringing a club together back together. And for me, this is much more powerful. We had a club that it was in a difficult state with a lot of cracks, with a, a lot of diversion. And at the moment, it's a very different club. And that's an incredible credit that everybody has to take from the top to the club, to every player, to every member of the staff that works here, because we've done that together. And then the next step is now we have the foundation to win and we are building a team to win, knowing that this era is unprecedented in English football because nobody has had ever this league teams that are capable of doing 100 points and 19 points and 98 points. And they are doing that for many years now, something that we haven't done ever in, in the history of this football club, even of our best times. So that's the aim and that's the challenge. So it's a project, yes, but that project had phases and those phases were really short. Sometimes it was a month or three months that we have to accomplish that. When you are evaluating to lift a trophy, that's something else. We've done it. We won two trophies, but these are not the trophies that are going to put us into the level that we want as a club. But this is certainly the direction that we are taking. Mm. And from a personal point of view, where does your satisfaction come from? Has there been one moment where you take a step back and you look at everything and think, yeah, we're on the right lines here? Probably comes when the people that they've been here for 30 years, that they are really emotionally attached to the club, comes to me and said, listen, I never seen this before. I never felt that unity across the club. I never felt that unity with our supporters. Everything is sold out. We're selling more shirts than ever. They, we don't have tickets. They really feel connected to what we are doing. And the other thing is when I go to that dressing room and I walk around the building and I see there really a sense of family and they describe it, it's not me describing a sense of family, what it means for them to work for the club, to participate in this journey together. And this is it. And now we have to take that to winning football matches and winning trophies. Miguel, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, John, when we mention Mikel Arteta, the word intensity always seems to come up, or the description anyway. I actually was struck by his integrity. What did you make of him? I thought it was a fascinating interview. Really got deeper. And sometimes, you, you know, you struggle and in, in you see pre-match press conferences, post-match press conferences. You don't even scratch the surface of the individual, do they? What makes him tick? What makes him work? And yeah, I look back upon a guy who was so intense as a player, so determined to learn, 
he was always destined to be a coach or a manager, absolutely 100%. I find him a fascinating character. And I, I really liked... I think that there was, a, at one point, there was a criticism of him, I think, in lacking humility, a bit too serious, a little bit too deep. And I just thought this kind of came through that, you know, he's learning all the time. He's addressing issues. You know, I thought it was fascinating learning. He's talking about learning from Guardiola, who he clearly regards as, as a mentor, as someone who's, you know, he can take so much from. But even talking about that kind of belonging in that sort of group and collective of other managers from other sports, including Eddie Jones. Well, what does that tell you about Mikel Arteta? That tells you about him wanting to improve as a person, improve as a manager, improve as a man-manager as well. And I just thought that that shone through. And I thought it was really interesting also, his desire to bring together a, a fractured club, because there's no doubt about it. They had so many issues, sort of a, a lopsided squad, too heavy, unhappy players, not pulling in the same direction, you know, the fan base were losing faith and losing heart, and that was quite destructive. And now you go to the Emirates and it's a totally different atmosphere. It's one of the best atmospheres in the Premier League right now. It's amazing. You, you wouldn't be saying that a year ago, would you? So mm. massive credit to him for turning around. But I really like the fact of his kind of self-examination here and his critique of himself and saying, I need to improve and trying to make himself better every day, being showing that humility, trying to sort of express himself better. And I, th I think it's great that he gets his point across now, perhaps from a more relaxed position of, of doing rather nicely. Thank you. Yeah, what struck me also, Seb, he came across as a, as a modern manager, almost a contemporary club builder. You know, there's someone with, with sensitivity, emotional intelligence, and that drive that, that John spoke about. We're used to sort of that role being fulfilled by big, brash, loud characters like a sort of Sir Alex Ferguson. He's different, isn't he? He's maybe more modern. Yeah, I think one of the, 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 the parts of the interview that stuck with me was when he talked about his relationship with Edu, because you're quite right, Mike. Like in previous generations, the idea was that the club rises and falls on a single person and a single person's abilities and the strength of their personality. Whereas now it's the quality of the relationships and it's the kind of the, I suppose the kind of the collegiate approach to kind of modern football management. And I think it's, it's interesting. I, I think you could apply this beyond just Arsenal, but like if that relationship doesn't work, the club doesn't work. And that's shown time and time and time again, sometimes in hindsight, but generally so. I think also... <laughs> His way of combating a very modern challenge interested me, which is that I think if I was a manager, I'd, I'm not sure I'd want all or nothing to be poking around my season. And I think sometimes in football, we, we, we can lose sight of the need for some compassion because that was a difficult one because all or nothing comes out. Now, there were very good moments in Arsenal's season last year, but ultimately it was a failure because they had a name that they were in sight of and they let it slip with a few games to go. And because of the way fans and rival fans work, it's very much a kind of point and laugh culture. There are some moments within that TV series which would be very, very difficult for a lot of people to survive because it becomes a definition of who you are. Like instead of all the kind of the, the coaching method and practice and the detail orientated, you know, planning sessions and the kind of all the things that you've spoken to him about in his interview, self-improvement, 
that can be undone very, very easily by anecdotes and, you know, lull moments and all the things that are kind of social media currency these days. And I thought when he, when he spoke about how he wanted to hear from people close to him, not just like people he worked with, but family members and people who loved him and people who he could trust to give an honest assessment of him. I found that very interesting because I, I think there are a lot of managers today particularly the type that you've described, which do still exist in the game, not in the kind of the Ferguson Wenger sense, but there are people that think that this is my club and I'm king of the club and what I say goes. And if you disagree with me, then that just means you're wrong. Like that you can still find that guy around European football. So I found it very interesting that it's a very difficult thing to combat. And I remember watching it and it, it I watched it just before the season started and thinking there could be a hangover here because you've been ridiculed a little bit as a man and that's tricky that's really hard and yet Arsenal come out of the traps and their start has been I mean it pains me to say I hate it but <laughs> they've been great they've been fantastic I think like there's naturally because of the things we said about the World Cup and squad depth and Man City being what Man City are and their strength and depth and like there'll always be that little question mark against Arsenal but I don't think Arsenal could have, could have been any better than they have been up to this point and that really describes some of the, the kind of the authenticity in some of the things he's said to you about self-improvement and evaluation and you know because a lot of managers talk about self-improvement like i've seen them on tv programs and you know they talk about oh i'm just trying to get better and really really it's just a job pitch it's a kind of like there was that kind of cabal of managers who did the same things and had the same jobs for about a decade and a half and they they never changed and yet, you know, anytime they're on a sofa on Sky Sports or, you know, whatever, they you, you hear them talking about, oh, just, you know, a different tactical approach and I'm getting better and I'm learning this. And it's fine. It's lip service. In this instance, you kind of believe what he's saying, I think. Unfortunately, unfortunately, with most fans. Yeah, what, what came across, I thought, was, and he agreed with me when I made the observation, that he's actually suited to young players because he mm. feeds off the, the unfulfilled ambition of those young players. Assess the team, if you could, please, John. You know, you've assessed the club because you've been around it a long time and you see how it's changed and the mood has changed. But that team, it has a vivacity for me that I haven't seen for you know quite a while. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, that, that, that Arteta was 37 when he took over as Arsenal manager. He's 40 now. He has a very clear link and relationship with young players. And listen, you could argue that he's made sort of kind of difficult decisions against older players. Some people were sort of kind of saying, oh, kind of maybe he feels threatened by big egos, big stars. I don't, I don't believe that, frankly. I still think he's moulded together a good team using experience and he's sort of kind of embraced, you know, a Xhaka, for example, and parties big in midfield for them. And so I think that that's harsh and unfair on him. But I do think he's determined to embrace the young players. I mean, it's astonishing. They're the youngest squad in the Premier League. He's handling, say, for example, Saliba, who he signed three years ago for a lot of money, spends three years out on loan, has to take the kind of the criticism of in questions of, you know, are you handling this guy right? Doesn't this does this guy not like you? Do you not get on? And he's he's brought him back into the team and just shows that it's brilliant man management. And, and getting the best out of him, being patient with it. You know, Saka, who frankly at times looks as if he's on his knees, he's played so much football and yet still kind of manages to to manage him really, really well. You know, Odegaard, we forget he's still young, 
just because he's been, he feels like he's been around forever because he made that move so quickly. Martinelli, another great case in point. And so I think he's really built a team on energy and youth and vibrancy with a few leaders scattered around, realising the importance of having characters down the spine of his team to kind of be those leaders like, a you know, a Ramsdale or kind of a Xhaka, you know, really. And now he's also has added so much to the team, not just as a really good striker, but as a leader as well. So I think he's he's determined, I think, to build on the vibrancy and the excitement of, of youth. I feel as if he could do with, you know, a couple of bits more of experience. And maybe because they'll say it themselves that they're short on depth, but they only want to sign the right players, which is very admirable. But I reckon the next, the odd signing that they might make, they might look at a little bit more experience just to guide the group further. Because at the moment, they're just getting it absolutely spot on with that brilliant young generation, but also the the, the older players to support them. Given the tenor of that conversation, Seb, it was clear to me anyway that, you know, Aubameyang was never going to be indulged. How do you think he'll fare under the management of Graham Potter at Chelsea? It's oh, a difficult question. I mean, easier to start with what Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is now, which is centre-forward who's been excellent for a long period of time, but no question in the twilight of his career. I think he is a, a moment in time, like it, it's, a, it's a marriage of convenience situation. Chelsea need goals. They need a centre-forward. They need a centre-forward's um, instincts. I think you saw that at Palace with a goal that he scored. That's just, I don't think any other player in Chelsea's first 11 scores that goal at the moment. So <clears throat> I don't think it will be a long-term thing. And I think if you, if you, very difficult to evaluate the problems at Arsenal. But I remember thinking, and this isn't hindsight, I, remember, I, I think I wrote this somewhere, so I'm, I'm happy to dig it out if necessary. When Arsenal signed Aubameyang, they signed a player who belonged at the time at a level of the game that they weren't at. Right? They wanted a player who was a consistent Champions League goal scorer because that's one, what they wanted to be. And you always felt that eventually you were going to have a problem which was defined by how Aubameyang saw himself in relation to the rest of the you know, the footballing ecosystem versus where Arsenal were and the kind of the timescale of their improvement. And it felt like those two things caught up. And at Chelsea, that's not such a problem. I, I think everybody goes into this relationship with their eyes wide open and pretty clear. You're here to keep Chelsea in the Champions League for another year until we can find a five-year plan that follows you. I still don't quite understand what's happening at Chelsea in terms of the recruiting patterns and the recruiting future. I mean, I don't think anybody will until there's a, a proper footballing structure above Graham Potter. There isn't yet, so we, we don't really know. But you're a, he's a placeholder player, and I, I think that's fine. I think that's the right place for him at the moment, in the same way that, okay, it wasn't hugely successful, but it's what he did at Barcelona to a certain extent. Like, he had good moments, and he's there to profit in certain situations. He had a very good Clasico against Real Madrid. And if that's all you're there to do, if Aubameyang scores a couple of goals against Arsenal, you know, down the line and it, it wins Chelsea three good points, it's successful. It's successful because that's what they need him to be. At Arsenal, he was something that I think he was a lunge by Wenger. He was a, right, we need to do something. We need to do something. So we need to sign someone who who kind of contravenes, you know, my beliefs in the game and, and my beliefs about squad building. And this is the guy and we need to do it now. And we need to spend a huge amount of money. It's just a different situation. And um, by the way, just on what John said about Arteta taking on some of these big egos, 
Like, I think I thought the same at the time. I thought, you know, you're threatened by Ozil, you're threatened by Aubameyang, you, you want it out so that it can be your thing. I think in time, if you look at it financially and you look at what they've been able to do, because Arsenal have recruited well, but they spent a lot of money. I don't think you can do that with the kind of the drag of the wage spend that players like Aubameyang and Ozil were creating. So it was a necessary fight. And it's a fight that if he hadn't taken on, they're not in this situation, you know, because they can't spend on a Jesus. They can't spend... You know, it's a privilege to be able to spend what they did on Saliba, but then not play him for three years. Like that's a, that's an unusual situation. It is really good management, but it's also you have to have a little bit of financial latitude to be able to do that. Otherwise, criticism follows pretty quickly. Zinchenko is another one. So these are all really good moves, even if in the short term they attract a lot of scrutiny. Mm. Let's go into Spurs if we if we can. <clears throat> I'll give you your. Oh uh... no. <laughs> I'll be I'll be with you soon, said. Don't worry, uh, um, yeah, okay. John. Why did you pick them as your team to finish runners up, and what are they not doing that you thought they would do? Antonio Conte. Basically, is the answer to both those questions. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, look, I do think of. Um, I, I read a brilliant piece actually by. Jonathan Liu in the Guardian, who sort of really poked fun at sort of drawing comparisons. I don't know whether you've seen it about a generational talent being a bit of a misfit in this Frankfurt Stadium, you know, and because Ed Sheeran played a gig there what a couple of weeks ago, and now Antonio Conte viewed by many, including myself, as a similarly generational talent. And he equally, Jonathan, who clearly doesn't like Ed Sheeran as as, as an artist, and uh, you know that's for other people to decide. But basically, I didn't mind Shape of You, but um, but there you go. Um, anyway, I I, I didn't realise concept... you were a, a sort of an anti hipster. No, I, I no, I I thought it was a it was such a great line, and it just so made me laugh. But basically, I do love. I tell you what, I do love even more, which is Antonio Conte. But I do think what do Spurs think they were getting into here. I have no doubt also that this guy will come back. Slightly worried me in his post-match examination. And he's getting slightly irritated, isn't he? Because he, do people think I'm stupid, you know, making little digs at Man United before the game, then after the game he's questioning about Spurs spending and basically do they need more players? They probably do, but this is the guy that, you know, I don't know how you can doubt Conte because Conte is an absolute winner. He turns teams like Chelsea into champions. He's done the same throughout his career. And I do think he has undoubtedly improved and taken Tottenham up. And I think they will get better with familiarity. I do think they've got a bit of an issue in, in creativity at the moment, haven't they? I mean, midfield, it's like a big glaring point there. The back line is pretty solid in whichever formation you go. He's got options up front, good options. It's a frightening forward line, although Son is just not at it this season. He's worryingly out of form, which which must be a concern. But what about the midfield? I mean, that's your issue. Because if you go, you know, as he often does, 3-4-3, three, three, he mixes up his formations like I've never seen him do before, actually, this season. He really changes and tweaks it. And I'm not always sure that that particularly works because I think he's very, very set in his ways and that helps Conte get the best out of players. But he has changed it a lot to try and find that formula. But the one thing he cannot do, you know, he's got a different set of midfielders at his disposal, but he hasn't got a creative one, in my view. Enough of creativity within that little cluster because he's got good defensive-minded ones, 
but who, who's going to find that killer pass? And that's your issue for me. Mm. Yeah, Seb, you know, there were some echoes of Fergie in that conference, you know, when he was saying, I can teach many people football. But looking at that team, as you do probably from behind your sofa, it does lack a bit of balance. Kulisevsky, when he's not there, he's missed, isn't he? Yeah, I think this was the detail miss when we talked about Spurs' depth you know, the, the kind of the heralding of Spurs' new depth over the summer. Like, on the one hand, being able to add a Richarlison is a, is a tremendous luxury. On the other, I don't know that Son, Kane and Richarlison works as a three. I mean, I think you, you have to drop someone out of there. And I, I'm with John. Like, I, I remember over the summer, over at TIFO Football, we, we do a series called Sensible Transfers. And I wrote the, the Tottenham one and there were some pressing concerns in there and other parts of the team at wing back and centre-half and stuff. But I felt like the passing quality that left when Christian Eriksen left the club has never really been replaced. And Dumbele was sort of that player but came with flaws. Lothelso was very brittle, has never really fit and, you know, um, really tailed off towards the end of his time at the club. And so to me, the logical step would have been to bring someone to the club who could drop into a midfield three, like a central three, not a two, because in a two, you need to have a Benton core and a Hoiberg. You, you just can't, like you can't unless you find someone that you know can do everything like but there aren't many like Yaya Torres knocking about and they're not really available for Tottenham in the prime of their careers so a, a sort of a Fabian Reese would have been a nice addition Ericsson was available but I'm not quite sure what happened there it didn't work out it feels like I think you saw this in the derby I mean let's say the Frankfurt performance was pretty good they're okay and they got a good point that's that's a fine performance in in Europe just not with the finishing touches the derby at the Emirates showed that Spurs can defend. Like They were let down by errors, obviously, and Arsenal deservedly won that game. But when the counter-attacking opportunities came, like the quality of pass that would have determined whether it became a scoring opportunity wasn't there. Like You need to have... That's a counter-attacking system which relies on numerical superiority. It uh, requires everyone to be absolutely perfect in everything they do. And... When uh, I, I think I, I, a lot of Tottenham fans don't like Hoiberg, I think he's a good player. Like I, I think he's he's done great things at Spurs. Actually, um, he's been a very important part of a revival and the return to the Champions League. I think Benzema is a super player. He's just not an attacking midfielder. He's a he's a he's a six really. And so without that sort of roving eight, someone who's kind of somewhere between an eight and an old fashioned number ten, I, I don't think you can have much variation. I and mean, it's a problem. It's a problem, and it hasn't been addressed by the club. And and um. It's difficult. I, I mean, I think I think some of the Spurs negativity is a little bit overdone because ultimately losing Derby is losing Derby. It's devastating. It's, a, it's an awful experience, as we all know. At the same time, if you look at the table and you look at what Spurs have been able to do this season with some very underwhelming performances, I think it's pretty healthy and I, I would still consider them a favourite to finish within the top four. It's just that, as ever, it's kind of boring, isn't it? We're always talking about recruitment with Spurs. Mm. Always, always, always. Even when, even when the resources are there, they're, they're signing players who, like, the barely seen Basuma. Jed Spencer's barely played. I, I mean, it, it's frustrating. It is frustrating. But yeah, no doubt there are some holes there. And I, I, I don't know. Conte, Conte as a manager always invites this situation. As a fan, I mean, I, I can't speak for other fans, but I speak for myself. Like, you're always worried that if he doesn't get what he wants you start to have a kind of a tone of press conference, which is entirely different, which is a kind of, well, you know, I'm Antonio Conte. I'm paraphrasing, but this is kind of what he says. I'll have options elsewhere because it's what he's implying. Like if I don't, if, if I don't get what I want, I'll go somewhere else. Mm. And I find that, I don't know whether that's my age. I don't know whether that's sort of my current relationship with my football club. 
I tune out of that stuff pretty quickly. Mm. Like I, I just, okay, man, like I'll be here. If you're not here, you're not here. You know, like it's, it's quite draining. And I, I, I find the whole thing that that sort of cycle of recruiting doom quite tedious. And that's really what I want to, want to avoid. I find that much worse than any bad performance, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but yeah, we'll see where it goes. I, I, I think they'll be okay. And they're a good side. I just don't think they're, I don't think they have the momentum of an Arsenal at the moment. I think everything is still really a hangover of the Pochettino era, as long ago as that now seems. It, it still is. It's not the same. Like, I, I think what Arteta is doing at Arsenal, it reminds me a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Like, the momentum and the attitude, the relationship with the club, the, the players, sorry, very, very similar. And now, this is a, feels more of a, a business relationship with Antonio Conte, which is different. You can only have one transfer blow up, I think. And he's used up so many, hasn't he? Seb, you, you raised on such a good point there. It, it worked last season, right? And basically he used it in the, again in the summer. But obviously probably behind closed doors. But then gets what he wants. And I just think you've used that up. And you're right. It becomes boring. It, it's a boring narrative. And John, it, yeah, you're right. It, 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 I, I, this is... So I wrote about my relationship with Tottenham for the Athletic a couple of weeks ago. It's been some sort of personal stuff in my life. And I think this is part of it in that like I'm not really there for this. I I, I mean, I, I care quite a lot about where the team finishes and I want to win trophies. But I, I care more about how I feel when I watch the side. Like, you know, when I'm in the stadium and, you know, I'm, obviously I don't get over to England as much as I used to. But and now it's like it feels like a wholly different type of football, like a... You know, I live amongst German football where it's a little bit different and kind of financial inferiority is very much part of the conversation. Everyone's aware of it and you can't pretend otherwise. And then I, I think I find the sort of the privileging of financial power and what we spend, what we spend, what we spend is very repetitive. Mm. And I, I, I just don't care quite as much. Hey, maybe I'm not the target audience is probably like for every one of me, it's probably 10 people, 10 fans that care very, very deeply what they spend and, and all power to them, fine. It's just not quite for me, that conversation. That's really all I'm saying. Yeah, If we're, if we're looking about, let's say, financial imprudence, you know, let's look at Manchester United. They're at Everton in Sunday night's BT Sport game, John. Seb talked about the pain of losing a derby. Uh, they were ruthlessly exposed by Manchester City. More humiliations to come, do you think? <laughs> there might be a few. Can I just flag up one thing, which I just think is really good? supporting English teams in Europe is, is the scheduling of this game. You know, I just think, you know, how many times we heard people moan after sort of a midweek, and I know it's a, because it's a Thursday night knock-on, but actually, this is, re- this is really good, right? And then basically, it does make it, I know, sort of, you know, the clubs are quite close together, so it works on a Sunday night, and I just think it's trying to give sort of kind of English teams in, in Europe a bit of a better chance. So I think being critical let's praise it and I think that's good by the way so apropos nothing but I just think that it's worth worth raising because it's almost like a lot of people will look at the fixture list this weekend going why is that there well uh, I just think fair play you know so that's good common sense and I also think that Man United are still such a work in progress yes I mean that 6-3 scoreline flattered them so much at the weekend they are still so I think far away under Ten Hag you know, I just don't know what their what their identity is, and you, and you have to give a manager time to create that. You know, because what is he going to play? What is he? What is his best formation? What is his best? You know, he, he's got to. I always think you've got to have this core of what seven, eight players, and then you kind of feed in the others around. How many parts of the jigsaw has, has Ten Hag got right now? You know, you, I just it's very very. 
he's changed both fullbacks, obviously, and centre halves is reliant, you know, on trying to keep Varane fit, which is no mean feat. Midfield, is that going to work? I'm not quite sure about that. Anthony scores a super goal, but is he the real deal? Look much better in the second half, you know. So there's promise there. Don't get me wrong. Centre forward, where are you going with that? Jaden Sancho started the season well, has dropped off a bit. Rashford, you know, is definitely, I think, been back in form of late and will go to the World Cup. But he's still searching for a consistency, I think. There's so many questions here for United. And they might surprise us and, and get into, into the top four. But that will be, you know, sneaking fourth will be the absolute maximum of what they can achieve. And we're back then to saying... Yeah, but this is Man United. And it's true, isn't it? And every manager is going to be up against that. I just don't think they thought about this clearly. And I think their squad looks a bit of a lopsided mess, frankly. And it it would worry me as a United fan in which direction. You know, you've got to give a manager time. You've got to give him transfer windows. But I actually think what they ended up doing in, in the summer has actually almost potentially set them back a little bit because I just don't know that there's joined up thinking there and you know the players that he really wanted possibly didn't get and he's ended up really compromising on too much and I think United look a bit of a mess at the moment Mm. you know there's a final point to you Seb referring back to what you know John alluded to about the expectation level on managers these days you know they're, they're playing United are playing at Everton you know, Frank Lampard has overcome you know, huge pressure and is proving his, his maturity as a manager, I think. When we've got those sort of expectation levels, how can any manager, for instance, and this is specific at the moment to Nottingham Forest, how can any manager, let alone someone new to the Premier League like Steve Cooper, deal with a club which is, you know, frankly all over the place in terms of you know, the random nature of its recruitment. 23 players, you can't do can't do anything with that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know enough about... I mean, I know as much as anybody about what's happening at Forest. I mean, I know the external aesthetics of it. It's very strange. Don't pretend to understand more. What we'll say is that I think what's important for, for managers, particularly if you don't have... Particularly if you don't have experience in the Premier League, but also if you're... If you do have a new group of players coming in, it stands to reason that you should be allowed to get to know that player. Like a key part of man management, I would have thought, is that you learn probably at times through trial and error how you know how to extract a positive response from a player. Like, is he someone that sulks when he's shouted at? Is he someone that responds well to it? Is he someone that needs to be coddled a little bit? Like you, you need to you need the time to develop those relationships. And if you're bringing in twenty new players over the course of the summer, there's just no way that can happen because. You can't expose the individual players to those situations with enough regularity to then learn from it. So I, I don't know. I mean, with, with Frank Lampard, I feel like actually, and this is not something I expected to be saying, I think Everton's recruitment has been pretty good. Like I, I like Anana, the midfielder. He was actually, uh, he played for Hamburg a couple of years ago and you you could tell he's going to be a good player. I didn't know he was going to be this good, but he's been very good. I think the acquisition of Connor Cody is very smart. Like everybody else, you know, you, you hear about Connor Cody's importance to the England team as well. And you hear about why. And you feel like, given the things that have happened at Everton over the past couple of years, that's exactly the sort of character 
you need. James Tarkovsky has done very well, I think. He's been, as described, I wouldn't say he's been outstanding, but he's been good and he has improved them. And I also, you have to, as far as Lampard's coaching abilities, I've been super impressed with what he's done with Alex Awobi. I mean, Alex Awobi, for a long time, I think, uh, again, with a bit of Tottenham bias factored in, I thought he was a little bit of an Arsenal hype job. I didn't really understand what he did. I felt like his reputation was bolstered by the fact that he played for Arsenal. Actually, completely wrong about that because he isn't the player that he sometimes was for Arsenal positionally. But what he's done at Everton, and Everton fans have kind of informed me that he was one of their best players towards the end of this uh, last season. I'm sure they know best. But this season, that kind of deeper lying, slower paced style of play has really suited him. And that's credit to Alex Iwobi himself because, like, you're the player. Like, we've seen... Remember when Alan Smith tried to become that player at Man United and it didn't really work. It was unconvincing. I think Iwobi's been excellent this year. And, and like, you have to you have to credit coaching staff for that. Not just Lampard, but the people who work with him. And Everton are... They're underpowered. I don't think that's controversial. They need more. And they are kind of dealing with the hangover of the past five years, six years, really, of, you know, bad decisions, let's be fair. But Lampard's created a stubborn team with the resources he has. And that's to his credit. I, I, I didn't I didn't think it was a good appointment when it happened. I was pretty negative about Frank Lampard. I felt like he got the Chelsea job prematurely and he was getting the Everton job on the basis of having got the Chelsea job. But that looks wrong now too. So <laughs> don't, don't listen to me. <laughs> but yeah, you have to you have to judge what's happening at the moment, not on what, you know, I, I thought a year ago or what everybody thought six months ago. And and it's it's better. It's better. But this is a good example, perhaps, of someone that, okay, there was some negative moments towards the beginning of the season, but you're allowed to ride through that. And I think that's really important. I think it's something we've lost in our game. Like, you got to be able to fail a little bit so that you can correct your thinking and then go forward. I think football is a cyclical game. It always, always, always has been. And unless you're bankrolled by, well, bankrolled by the kind of people that do bankrolling these days in football, <laughs> then you're going to have to suffer these moments and you have to be allowed to rebuild through them. So it's, yeah, a good and bad example of that, really. Mm. Well, you know, Seb made the point about character in the context of Connor Cody. You know, that took me back again to that conversation with Mikel Arteta, where, you know, he essentially said talent is secondary to character. As we discussed the modern player can be unmanageable if his reputation is inflated and his attitude's not right. The lesson of Arsenal's revival, it seems to be, lies not in the individual, but in the collective commitment to a culture of diligence, responsibility and shared values. So thanks to Mikel for his time. And of course, thanks to Seb and John for their insights Thanks also to you for your feedback. It's much appreciated. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.